I remember them like like slipping over the manila <laughs> folder to me and I literally look at it and just tears start falling on my wow. face. And I just say like, thank you. And the number has to be higher. This is Funded, a show where founders who raised millions in venture capital share the gritty side of what it actually took to get that money in the bank. I'm Jason Ye. Not too long ago, I was trying to get my ideas funded. And back in the day, I was a VC listening to founders pitch me for money. The surest way to get backed by a VC is to match a stellar pattern, like having a successful track record of launching high-growth startups or the right credentials, like graduating from Y Combinator or being an early employee at a unicorn. We call this pattern matching in fundraising lingo. But it's really just a fancy way to explain something we all intuitively know. Unless you're dealing with a major risk taker, the easiest way to convince someone is to show them you're like someone they've seen who's succeeded before. But what do you do if you've never done something like this before? Or maybe have all the passion in the world, but don't look like someone who VCs would expect to launch the next Stripe or Figma? Meet Sanira Madani, the millennial who just led her fintech startup Stacks to unicorn status. They just closed on a $245 million round this spring, setting a pattern for a whole new generation of founders. Because as it stands, research shows that in fundraising, less than a percent goes to companies led by women of color. And that's not the only pattern Sanira as a first-generation American breaks. She also raised one round while pregnant, something even a few of her closest mentors told her to hide and was adamant that she wouldn't budge from her HQ in Orlando, Florida. But it turns out her parents set the pattern for her, opening a series of stores and restaurants that were highly influential in her upbringing, which is where we jumped into our conversation. So just want to get started. One of the places that we start with these conversations is just hearing a little bit about what you were like growing up. And Stax is interesting because you actually founded it with your brother. So wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you and Sal were like as kids. Um, one of the things that I think is really helpful for founders is sometimes they believe that there's like one archetype for a founder that might be really difficult for them to match their engineers out there. They're minorities, they're women, and when they see this one hard-charging kind of prototype or archetype for a founder, that's what they think they have to be, and they can't always be that. You are not white or a man, so, and you, you co-founded the company with your brother, so I would love to hear a little bit about you and Sal growing up, and we'll go from there. Jason, thanks actually for asking that, because that's one of the biggest things that I'm a huge proponent of is demystifying what a CEO or what a founder looks like because there really is no such thing. And I will tell you, I'm sure we're going to get to all my crazy fundraising experience, but I used to also try to fit into a box that I didn't belong. And it wasn't until I finally owned my authentic CEO that the company really took off. So I really appreciate you starting us out here because there isn't a perfect archetype of a person. And I think that that's what also needs to change in the VC world 
Uh, I'm a huge proponent of like women in in business and women, you know, less than 3% of venture funding goes to women, less than 1% to minorities. And so uh, I think that the, there is unfortunate, a biased archetype, but there there isn't an archetype for founders. What's the bias is who's getting the venture funding. So I'm That's sure right. we'll get there, but I agree with you <laughs> on this. So a little bit about my background. Um, and I think it's super important to start there. Yes, I did co-found a company with my brother. I started the company and then he came in just shortly thereafter. I was in the payment card industry, so I was the one that kind of had the experience in payments. But Sal was the one that had a ton of, you know, startup venture experience. So it was this perfect blend of two completely different uh, experiences that we had in our professional growth. So it was just a, a natural partnership. And then who better to do it than somebody you trust, you know, like your family and so, and my brother. So uh, we grew up in an immigrant household. So my parents are Pakistani. They immigrated here separately from Karachi, Pakistan. They met in Chicago. I was born in Chicago. Then we moved to Dallas where my brother was born. And we kind of grew up in this um, entrepreneurial household naturally because for them, entrepreneurship was a necessity, not a, uh, it wasn't sexy, right? They didn't have a college education. And so right. for them to get the American dream, which was to make sure that my brother and I got a college degree. Like that was the American dream for them that they didn't have to become, like we didn't have to become entrepreneurs. So it's crazy how our story, like we're now both, they're both their kids are entrepreneurs. Um, but we learned everything from our parents. I mean, I, I wouldn't change a thing about growing up in, you know, I wouldn't say like crazy adversity. You know, we were middle class and uh, we had a ton of, you know, just so much abundance as a family of family time and family dinners and, you know, as an immigrant kid, a lot of pressure on our studies and getting really good grades, helping out our parents at their stores. So we had a convenience store, then we had like a pizza restaurant. We had all of these different types of businesses that my brother and I ended up, you know, we grew up in these businesses with our family. Yeah. T tell me a little bit about that little business, because I, I think that is very formative. Do you remember what you were asked to do and the things that you sort of built along the way in terms of personal development skills. Yeah, I look back now and I'm like, oh my God, I was getting my MBA as like a seven-year-old <laughs> without knowing it, right? Like watching watching my parents just, you know, run a small business. And, you know, I remember there was a memory I actually shared with Entrepreneur Magazine last week and it was on a video interview and I talked about like a vivid memory that I have is me stocking shelves and I was just, you know, like hanging out on the store on the weekends and then my dad would give us like odd tasks to do. And so one of my jobs was to line the cans up and then put the little sticker from the sticker gun onto because you didn't have point of sale systems at the time. And so you manually priced something on the sticker gun and then you put the stickers up. So he would have like the price done for me. And I had to place the little stickers onto this organized canned shelf. And one of my memories is he came back and he was like, OK, great job. However, like make sure that the labels are all pointed in the right direction. And wow. if you're just going to do it, don't do it quickly, like do it with quality and make sure that it's in the same spot. And oh, do you see that you, there's dust here? So I know that wasn't part of the job that you were supposed to do. I told you to line the shelves of the, the cans up. But if you see that there's dust here, go grab a duster and then you can just wow. dust it off. So it's so important of like doing things with quality and care. And so things like that, like I now look back and I'm like, oh, my God, Jason, like those were these beautiful experiences that we had as children watching mm -hmm. our parents work so hard. And that was it. That was the work ethic. That was the quality. That was like the no job is better than like you wore every hat as a small business owner. And, you know, it was all that quality down to like that 
simple can of corn, you know, and that that's kind of that was how I how we grew up. And so there is this unique background that, you know, my brother and I shared. And there were there were also setbacks from it. Right. I mean, there was a lot of stress in the household, obviously, financial instability from just entrepreneurship, bringing that home. We went to 10 different schools in 12 years, like on the pursuit of all of these different businesses. We ended up moving to Florida. So people ask all the time why our company is here in Orlando. <laughs> I was like, this is the last place I'm moving. This is the last place I moved. I moved here when I was 16 years old. Yeah. It was my third high school that I had come to. Wow. And I was like, I am not moving ever again. And so honestly, that's how Stacks ended up in Orlando, wow. which is one of the best decisions that we made. But that's kind of a huge part of Sal and I's story growing up. And so yeah. because we went to 10 different schools, we kind of only had each other. So even though we were like annoyed, he was my younger brother and we definitely <laughs> had our sibling moments. But at the end of the day, like all we had was each other, too. And so we've always had this really great, you know, friendship. Uh, and he was always my best friend growing up because that's kind of like that was home. That was like the yeah. only piece of yeah. like home that I had was was that. And so we're really close and we got to we get to do this together every day. The the trust between co-founders is so huge when it comes to mm-hmm. starting a business from scratch and then scaling it. Um, I think that chemistry also bleeds into fundraising and making sure that um, investors see the team that is going to be running this company and, and knowing that it's like a two-headed monster that will actually tackle the things that need to get done. Um, one other small line of questioning around your, your upbringing. So incredible stories around just what you learn towards attention to detail, hard work, dealing with adversity and setback. These, these themes all sort of bleed into what it takes to raise money. I wonder if you were culturally or personally just wired to ask for things and, and ask for money. And, and what, would, what do you think it felt like the first time you went fundraising relative to what you were like as a kid? Was that a natural transition for you? I would say it was actually the opposite. I think asking for money was definitely something that that was not some like that is was not natural. So you worked hard for it yourself. Like you don't you don't ask for things like you work hard for it. So I did grow up around like whatever the adversity is, whatever no you get, you find a path through it. Um, And you don't just take no for the answer. There's another solution out there. So I grew up in a very like solution oriented environment where there were lots of problems, but we tackled them with solution finding. On the asking for money aspect, I think that was the complete opposite. And I think that we also, you don't see a lot of, um, like it wasn't an industry that we were ever familiar with. So even as I was, I went to University of Florida, I went to a great college, I got a degree in finance, I got a degree in marketing. You know, I didn't learn about venture until so much later in my life and in my career. So I wasn't exposed to what venture fundraising. I wasn't exposed yeah. to even a concept that you could get other people to invest in your business. Like that wasn't something that I even grew to know until yeah. later in my, you know, in my startup journey as well. And so it wasn't something that was natural, but the hard work portion and proving yourself portion, that was a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> so it's a great transition into what I want to ask you about, which is you started the company, I think, in 2014, from what I can tell online. Um, given what you said just now about weren't even sure that there was an industry like venture capital that would fund early stage tech businesses, did you start the company knowing that you would need some sort of additional money outside capital? Or was it start a company and then 
you started just getting pulled into this gravitational pull of, of venture capital, one or the other? Yeah, it was it was the latter. I had no intention of raising venture capital. Our company was just growing faster than we could keep up. Mm. And so I had no I no desire or even an idea to go build a billion dollar business. I didn't even know I could go build a million dollar business, let alone a billion dollar business. Yeah. And so, and that's one of the huge, I think that representation matters so much. I never saw women, you know, starting and scaling companies at that level. Less yeah. than 2% of female founders ever even break a million in revenue, right? So seeing is 100% believing. And there's all these biases that we have ourselves naturally just because we don't see people like us doing these things. And so I didn't grow. I didn't see any of that. Yeah. I wasn't exposed to any of that. I started uh, Stacks 2014. And, uh, you know, I was literally selling door to door at that point to go get small businesses onto our platform. I had no background in technology. Sal was working out in California for a startup. I was working in the payments industry when I had the idea of the first subscription-based credit card processor, which now seems like so natural. But in <laughs> 2012, when that came about, there was nobody in the market that was doing it. And I firsthand was experiencing what my industry was doing to small businesses. And I had that background. I knew that there had to be a better way. I pitched the idea back to my old bosses. There's plenty of podcasts on that your listeners can go yeah, catch up on. Yeah. But I got rejected. And I was a reluctant entrepreneur. I wanted to take this to my old company. I wasn't even trying to become an entrepreneur. Oh, no way. That's was, one part of the story. You were trying to help your I old was, company. Yeah. And they're like, well, I guess if they're not going to take it, I have to do it myself. That's exactly how it went down. And, That's incredible. And then when I started doing it, we were signing up customers. I got, you know, I went to a venture accelerator, a tech accelerator, because I wanted to build out the software component of our platform, right. not just the flat subscription fees that we had. And so I had to go get a technical co-founder. And that's where I met my co-founder, Jacques, who's also become our other brothers, like what we call them. So we're like, like the three-headed <laughs> monster. And so it's just been this incredible journey since 2014. But, you know, yeah. I didn't know that we were going to need venture capital. It was at a point when we couldn't keep up with the demands of our customers. We had about... I think it was at that time, 60,000 in MRR, so monthly recurring revenue on our platform. And we're like, we need to go, we couldn't develop fast enough based on what our customers' needs yeah. were. We had already validated that we had a proven MVP. We didn't even have a product. We were white labeling solutions pieced together for our customers. And then we had a viral article that went on Fast Company titled Meet the Woman Trying to Change the Credit Card Industry that we didn't know was going to go viral. So a lot of my story is like, showing up every day for a job that's like bigger than the one I had yesterday. And yeah, and that's how it that's how it all started. And now we're, you know, 23 billion in payments later. Crazy yada, yada, yada yeah. moment there. And we'll, we'll get yada, there. Yada, uh, yada. Right, right. Small yada here and there. Uh, one thing I just wanted to react to and applaud you for is how much you've put yourself out there as a role model or something that other people, like you said, can see. Just believing that it's possible I mean, so much of just knowing what is possible can really encourage people to, you know, take the step. Steph Curry started shooting threes, like five feet behind the three-point line. No one was doing that before. And once he did it, everyone started doing it. Like little kids are practicing to the detriment of, of youth basketball. But I, I would say that seeing someone like you, Sanira, out and about um, on magazine covers, talking about the business you built is amazing. And I think the other thing, especially on a, a fundraising podcast to talk about is the path you took, which is, you know, not feeling like you had to raise venture capital, but really that you wanted to 
just build a business. Like you were just solving a problem. You, you wanted to build the thing that you believe needed to exist and you were willing and ready to do the things without capital. And, um, what I tell people on a one-on-one basis all the time is that the best fundraising happens when you're, you're like, you're not really looking for it. It's like pulling it from you. It's like, you have to, and people like want to give you money and want to invest in the opportunity. Too many founders do it the other way around and believe because of TechCrunch headlines and everything else and the sexiness of startups nowadays that the goal is to raise money. And that's never the goal, right? The goal is to build a great business, solve problems, and then find fuel for that fire. Absolutely. So, you, um, you said it really eloquently. It is 100% now as an investor now. So I invest in startups now, which is so crazy to me. And Just so paying it forward. Yes, too, right? absolutely. But the founders that I want to invest in are the ones that are building great businesses. When I was building a business, I was building a great business. Today, I have an incredible business. And every step of the way, I've always had an incredible business. And so although there's a lot of adversity that we're going to probably talk about in the fundraising process, I agree with you. I think some founders have it backwards and that they almost use the lack of funding as an excuse to go build a business. Go figure out yeah. how to get your customer. Go figure out how to validate it. Go figure out how to get revenue. And then once you have more proof, investors will come and also be there too. I do think yeah. that there is some marginalization, which I know we're going to get to, and I keep like alluding to it because there is so <laughs> much bias. But at the end of the day, if you build a really great business, you also don't need the capital. You have the control to decide what you want to do in your company. And I can't wait. Let's dig dive. Like let's like, deep right into, I've raised six rounds of capital so far. Our last round was our unicorn round with our Series D funding $245 million. And at this point, I even had two different options. I could have taken a majority option, which would have been like a, a private equity that would have come in and just bought out our current investors again and just done like a recap. Right. And But we ended up doing a minority capital raise, which means that I didn't, we didn't sell more than 25% of the cap table. And so, you know, you're able to make decisions like these when you have a solid business. And so do yourself a right. favor. You control your own destiny, right? Build a great business. Yep. There's no such thing as a billion dollar idea, only a billion dollar execution. If you execute and you build a great business, then you don't need to worry about anything else. And you will find the right pieces at the right time to go scale on your terms. Yeah. So then let's, um, the $245 million Series D that closed at the most amazing time, March 2022, will be the punchline, will the thing be the thing that we get to. I want to make sure we onboard into the fundraising story. And talk about your round in 2015. It's listed on Crunchbase that you raised 850K. I assume that was coming out of the accelerator program you talked about. But I, I want to see if you can bring yourself back to 2015, Sanira. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what was going through your mind? Like, what was yeah. the thing that made you believe that now was the time and you had done enough to be like, all right, I think I can go raise money? Do you remember what was going through your head? Yeah, it was fucking hard is what was going through my head. I mean, we were building a company. We had customers. Like, that's what it was. We had customers. We had a demand. We saw that there wasn't a, there was a perfect niche in our marketplace. Like, payments were, fintech was, like, it wasn't even a word in toilet. Like, people weren't even using fintech at the time. So we were early at our time. We had a couple of technology disruptors that had come into the space, Square and Stripe and PayPal were probably ones that, you know, most listeners recognize, but there wasn't, everybody was single threaded in their solution set. So you had, you know, Stripe that was focused on developer solutions. You had Square that was focused just on mobile or in-person payments. We were here 
there was nobody bridging the gap between online transactions and in-person transactions. So there's so many verticals like professional services, field services, right? Your lawn care, you take a payment in person and then they got to have a back office invoicing system. Your dentist, you go do your copay and then they got to bill you for your kids like orthodontists, like your, your braces bill, right? So there's so many industries, healthcare, professional services, uh, and service-based industries that needed both the bridge between in-person and online transactions. And we were just, that's what we were doing. And so we felt like we had to double down. And I think in that moment, I had a choice. Like I could go continue to build at the pace that we were building. But I yeah. think our customers were like growing so fast that we wanted, we knew that there was, this market was so massive. And yeah, so that's yeah. that was that point that we knew we had to raise capital. We did go through that venture accelerator. So that was my first footing into understanding the world of investors. And now there's so many options available. But in 2014, it was 2015 January, the venture accelerator. There was literally only one in Orlando. Like there wasn't a lot of <laughs> like venture. So, so this is what I want to pull apart. What you described, like let's say we had computer AI generated male voice describing where you started, where it's like, we had this business. I came from the industry. I knew there was a problem. I went out there, hit the pavement myself, signed up my first 15K of MRR. Uh, it was happening. We just needed more capital to scale. That is the story that pattern match wise for a VC, an early stage VC is like, oh, this makes sense, right? So that would be a huge advantage. Now in 2015, Orlando, or I, I was a venture capitalist at the time. We had a really hard time thinking about any deals that were outside of the major hubs. It was this idea like, how could you ever recruit the best talent to, I, so the example I'm giving is Minneapolis. We were, we were talking about this deal that we would do. We ended up doing it, but it was like, just like a lot of consternation. Could we recruit great talent? Orlando definitely was not on the scene in, in 2015. So that's one. Second is female founder. You've already talked about the numbers even today in 2022 very difficult to raise money as a, a woman. And then three, um, minority founders. So tertiary city, female founder, minority led business. Tell me a little bit about starting the journey of fundraising. I mean, I'm sure the accelerator program did what they could to help grease the wheels, to help get your mindset right. But nothing really prepares a first time founder for what it's like to raise money. Can you tell me a little bit about difficulties or, or maybe it was easy for you, but like difficulties and, and the challenges associated with raising that first round of capital. It was far from easy. And when you just said those three things of like a city, like the no named city, that's not a venture city, being a woman, being a woman of color, we were a unicorn to even begin with. Like, like we were a unicorn to <laughs> exactly. even begin that's with. It's that's a so, great way it's, to think about it. It really was. It's so difficult. I look back and I'm like, dude, how the hell did we do this? Like, I literally mm -hmm. look back all the time and I cannot believe that this is our story. This is my story. Like, I cannot believe it still. And it's still that pinch me like it's hard work. Like we didn't take any shortcuts. We put in the work. We're still putting in the work. And we took discounts along the way for being in Orlando. We took discounts along the way for being a woman. We took discounts along the way for being minority founders. And we gave yeah. up way too much of the company than we needed to. And so I do believe that there were so many disadvantages that we did have, but we found a way, you know? And so again, we built a great business. And so that is the one thing that I could come back and lean on is we know how to build a great business. And I've done this now multiple times. I haven't fundraised for other companies before, but I now help mentor you know, hundreds of female entrepreneurs. And I have a foundation for how to build a good business. And that's that's the most important thing. But I look yeah. back, Jason, and I'm like, that was so difficult. And there was not 
one moment that was easy at all. First, it was, you know, just getting our seed round. So you want to do your friends and family round. But for most minorities and for like for marginalized community, like I don't have friends and family that just have like, here, dad, here's 25, like, here's your $25,000 check. And that's why it's so funny to think about in the VC world. It's like, oh, the friends and family round. But many of us don't have friends and family that can just fork out, uh, you know, the capital that we need, like a half a million dollar seed round is it's it's not easy to even get friends and family or to be able to take that capital. You asked me the question about asking for money. Okay, that is not in our immigrant DNA to go do that either. Totally. So that's one component of it. Two, I think the first check is always the hardest, right? It's like getting that first check. You get a lot of like people who are interested. You take meetings everywhere. I just remember trying to meet every person in town and it's exhausting. You're running a business. You are taking every meeting possible. People are wasting your time as well, which is the most frustrating oh, thing gosh. as a founder. Yeah. Like everybody wants to have a fucking cup of coffee. Everybody wants to have a glass of fucking wine. Everybody wants to fucking meet you and then not like do anything about it. Like I don't have time to not take action. Like I've got right. work to do. I, I love that you were a retired ex-CEO of some company that we've never heard of. I don't know like who, we, like that's amazing that you've been able to do that. But stop wasting my time if you're not going to invest. But you have to put in, you have to go like, you know, meet all of these, what do you call it, to go find the, you have to meet the yeah. frogs to go kiss the frogs to kiss, find kiss the Kiss the thousand frogs before you find the prince. No, yes. I think you, one thing that uh, I haven't talked about before is this, the angel hustle is such an interesting dynamic. When you're pitching to venture capitalists, <laughs> at least. That's all I have to say. <laughs> pitching to VCs, your job to pitch, their job to listen take the step before that though when you're pitching angels you are pitching people like you described you know rich dentist uh (laughs) retired ceos you are pitching for your livelihood this is your job it's like a country club for them you know they're like oh senior i've heard great things about happy to take you out for a coffee tell me about this you know they may or may not be doing it because they're hunting for a deal they're probably just like looking to spend their time in a more interesting way so that feeling and that frustration of that first hustle to get dollars is um, something it's that so not a lot real. of people talk about. Right, right. It's so real. I actually haven't talked about it. Like this is the first time I think that I've actually talked about that angel <laughs> hustle. That was really hard. And that was a lot of time that was wasted. And then we did yeah. get like, and those are the things like you don't know, right? So you have to say yes. And that's what I look back at, right? Like it, it was hard, but we did get great angels too. I did meet like some of the, some of like those angels actually are still dear friends of mine. And like, we've done other deals together now. And so there are some really great things that come about it. So you do have to put in the work. You do have to kiss the frogs. You do have to say yes. But yeah. if I were to look back and give myself advice, I would say maybe vet them a little bit first or find from your networks. You're not just having endless coffee dates and endless whatever with people who are not going to actually yeah. be able to take action. But there wasn't this like list of like, it was Orlando. Like there's, there wasn't yeah. like, it was, it was what it was, but got it done. Got it done. You've probably heard me talk about the concept of an angel army before. It's a small group of investors whose main value is around expanding your network and enhancing your credibility instead of actual operating capital with the idea that they'll eventually help lead you to those bigger fish. And what you just heard was a great example of raising an angel army, a group of investors who would later come back around to help make Stacks a unicorn. But when we come back, more on what it's like to be in the middle of that grind. 
If you're a startup trying to sell into enterprises, I'm sure you've been dreading getting some sort of certification like SOC 2 or HIPAA. I know I did when I was running my last company and it cost us some important deals. If that's you, you're in luck because not only is there an awesome solution called Vanta that makes the process dead simple, but also funded listeners get $1,000 off the service by going to vanta.com funded. That's V-A-N-T-A dot funded. Check it out. We all know that fundraising has long been a white male-dominated space, but things seem to be changing for the better. Y Combinator has been increasing the number of minority founders it accepts, and more investment firms are adopting diversity and inclusion strategies. But even if we're moving towards a more equitable future, we're still living in a world in which being both female and pregnant can be held against you in the startup world. Sanira explains how she navigated those pressures and others on her route to becoming a unicorn. Do you remember, especially in that first raise, any of the most difficult pitches or the conversations you had, things that upset you? So (laughs) many, so many, so many. It's like the amount of times I think Sal and I were called children. Oh my gosh. I don't understand. Like we're, because we're young, right? We were young. I was 26 years old. That was like in the first part of the raise, right? Like where people don't believe in you and they're like, well, these children can't like the child thing is like a real there's there's sexism, there's racism and there's ageism, too. And when you're young and you're you you are meeting with people who do have like a lot more life experience, a lot more business experience. That's wonderful. And I want to learn from those things, but that doesn't discount where I am in my experience as well. So I think that there is definitely a lot of ageism as well that takes place, especially for young founders who haven't had a ton of business experience yet. That was one thing. But any stories? Oh, my God, so many. So we got the angel round done. Probably plenty of stories that I can come up with. We could probably spend the next three hours going through it. But I would say like one of my most like heartbreaking stories was by Series A, uh, I was pregnant for the first time with my daughter, Mila, who's now six or about to be six. And then my second, the Series B, I was pregnant with Anna. So a few fundraise I did while pregnant. Okay. So first I was told by mentors who I want to say that they love and care about us. Like this was not like some asshole mentor who's like giving us advice, like to not share my pregnancy. And they come from a place of protection because the venture world is just not, they're already not used to me. They're already not used to talking to a brown woman. Then you're going to add another complexity to this thing. It's just more more biases and more questions. So, of course, I took that advice, but I look back and I wish I had it. But I also think about if I hadn't taken that advice, would my outcome have been the same? So I hit the pregnancy as best as I could, meaning like, you know, you just you're not showing for a while. And, uh, you know, when we go out, there's lots of like fundraising isn't just it's not it's the art of like the business pitch but it's also all the social elements that go with it too right it's the dinners it's the getting to know it's the it's the intangibles that a founder has it's like all of these things and i'm really good at these intangibles but things like i remember sal and Jacques would order like would order me a mocktail without it knowing like we had like club soda but like i I would make sure that it was like in a cocktail glass that like nobody was asking you know, just stupid things like that. I look back at, so we were like kind of masking it without thinking about it. Now we can sit back and laugh and talk about it. But that wasn't even going through my head at the time. It was just like, we got to get through this, get through the fundraise. 
But a story that comes to mind is like, even just while we're, so I started to show obviously at some point and it was like, oh, well, the questions that I have two other male co-founders here, like the amount of time in a business, we only have an hour, right? Of a meeting with you. Okay. Then we want to spend 30 minutes of our meeting talking about what my post-pregnancy plan is. Like, let's get to business. You're not asking. And what's crazy is that my co-founder, Jacques, was also pregnant. His wife was pregnant at the same time, but no one's asking him what he's, what his plan is. And so just stuff like that, like I look back at and I'm like, girl, I don't even know how I got through some of the things that I got through in fundraising. And it it was awful. Um, And I talk about it now. I mean, like I share all of this like very openly on interviews and I share it on my podcast and I'm trying to change the narrative in venture in like one part of the internet that I own, but it has got to change. It is so biased. And it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being so transparent and sharing it. Um, I talked to a lot of female founders in particular, underrepresented founders, uh, all those categories. And one of the good things I do think is that the industry is at least talking about it. And we're, you know, we're trying to be aware of this problem, um, but it's not changing fast enough. And the, the harsh reality that I share with people is that Unfortunately, it's people like you that are going th- through the more difficult times and founders that are raising now. And I think you're trying to normalize these things, right? It shouldn't be weird that a woman can be pregnant and be an amazing executive and come back even stronger than ever and have more to work for, to be honest. But it doesn't happen until people see the example that they can follow. And that is what I like congratulate people for. That's what I get people prepped for and congratulate for when they go through it is that you are becoming the pattern that people after you can match against, right? So um, cheers for that. I think what I'd like to do then is skip forward. So lots of stuff have happened between 2014, your first raise in 2015 to now. You actually just announced a $245 million Series D um, in March of this year. Now, a lot of things happened before announcing. I know, I know that's usually what happens, but maybe you can rewind a little bit and talk us through what's happening in the business in probably early 2021 where you're like, huh, there is another, you know, we've raised probably, you know, probably 20 million before then the business is doing well as that's your operating model is to run a good business. Um, but there are decisions that you have to make around whether or not to bring in more capital. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, it comes back to the same thing. It's building a great business and knowing where the market is heading to support that. I mean, we had, we've definitely raised like right sub, uh, I think it was total capital in to the business was like around 200 million. Um, and so in total, and that included also buying out our investors and so not mm. all the business, not all the capital. I think that's where there's, there's so much about venture that people you learn yeah. as you go through these experiences. So don't let like titles of like X amount, like it doesn't mean anything until you like actually know where yeah. like dollars end up and things like that. So our previous raise of our series C was also a cleanup of our initial like investor base, our oh, cool. angels. And then we had, uh, you know, a big chunk of capital put into the business. So probably about $75 million worth of capital over the, like that we have used to go accelerate the company. But at the point of where we were at this last year, it's another, it's the same, same situation. We are, you know, our growth rate, we're at triple digit growth rate. So our business is booming. 
we invested heavily. So as we started off, we were a direct to business product. Uh, we're, you know, um, signing up customers one at a time. In 2018, we focused on that last, that Series B raise on our infrastructure and architecture of payments to allow software companies to then monetize for their customers and be that supporting arm. And we believe that all software companies are payments companies. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. So in 2018, we were ahead. So it's like as we've always been ahead of where the market is going because we're in it. We're, we're with our customers. We're in it. We have a direct customer base across our key verticals that we serve. So we saw it. We're like, we need to go into these verticalized softwares. And that's where payments are going to live. There's only a handful of companies in that space. Stripe is only one of them. There's literally five. Like there's nobody in the space. And it's complete white space. And we we know what we're doing on both this card present and card not present. We need to bring our infrastructure to these companies. So that's when we needed to go raise capital because technology requires investment to go hire and to go build software at the level that we want to do it. And payment software at that is compliance and architecture. I mean, it's very, very complex. There's a lot of complexity in taking a transaction and taking it end to end. And so building that requires capital. Yeah. Then on the other side, we have sales and marketing. And for every dollar I put in, I get $3 back. So we have like this machine of an engine on the direct side of our business. So it's all of the things on building a good business, but also knowing where the puck is like headed and getting there versus following the puck. And so that's kind of been the strategy for Stacks. And then for this last fundraise, we're also smart about building and validating before we go put the fire. And so I want to be really, really, really sure. And I think this is where there's a difference between female founders and male founders. And men usually will, um, you know, take more risks, right? And and honestly, for female and men, from an investment standpoint, investors will invest in men for their potential. Investors will invest in women for what they've done. Mm. So it's almost like this own internal bias that I have that I have to go prove it harder than my male counterparts have to anyway. And so I think I've been trained subconsciously in that way. So I go build first. We had about almost 50 partner software companies already on the side of the platform. And then then we went out to go raise to say, okay, this is like a a big area of the company that's hockey sticking. We need to go invest. And that's where we went out to go do another capital raise. And so that was what took place. It was a completely different process at this level of fundraising. So we we were at it for like almost a year, I would say, since the process began to like what we officially came to market was fall, uh, like Q3 of last year. Yeah. So it's been about a year since now. But that was more of we did a formalized process, investment bankers. We did the whole roadshow and we were really selective about who was going to be our next strategic partner on the other side. We went through kissing a ton of frogs again. Yeah. And then we ended up just picking our current partners. So our current partners ended up putting in yeah, more okay. capital into wow. the business and we ended up doing a minority capital raise. We brought on uh, net new partners, but we didn't end up doing like some big uh, deal with, you know, some of the major players that you may know of, like, you know, I'm not going to say that sure. we're in the process, but you know who they are that would come in at this level. And so we ended up sticking to our own path and doing a minority. And then the next step would be you know, taking the company public would be probably uh, next or a strategic. That's super so. exciting. Uh, a couple of things I want to react to is, you know, that bias around the funding of men and women, I hadn't thought about that before, but I think directionally speaking, that's right. And now with where the shakeup in the venture capital markets have been, there's there's been so much excess around 20 and 20, 2020 to 2022 of making these bets based on the future and craziness and giving people multiples that 
kind of blow my mind as a XVC from the 2012 to 2016 era. But hopefully that bias helps out female-backed companies in this coming generation because that is, I think that is where things are going is that there's going to have to be much more proof around what is possible, what has already been done. So that's interesting. And then two, it's just, you know, when I think about raises that are done amazing rounds, $245 million raised, $50 million raised, they always seem so like, oh, that was like a slam dunk. But, you know, if you're trying to price your company competitively and you're not trying to give your whole company away, no matter how good of a company is, you're going to be on the razor's edge of people saying no and people saying yes. And so there must have been this moment that when it was all said and done, you were like, wow, we, we, we did it. Do you, do you remember that moment, like when, especially your insiders who were like, you know what, we should just do this in here. We're going to, we're going to give you a term sheet. Um, do you remember that moment? Yeah. It's always when you get the term sheet in hand, when it's like actually physically there and you have it and it's, it's, it doesn't, and it doesn't, it's actually not even real in that moment because term sheets are still sure. <laughs> like you learn that there's still a process after that. So it's never done until money hits your bank. Like that's it. Then you can celebrate. So we really do. We try to have these like micro celebration moments, but I will tell you that when you get that term sheet in your hands and it's validating and it's whatever that value is and it it's real, yeah. right? And that's when it becomes at least more real and it feels like, oh my God, okay, that, that was worth it. Like we have something tangible in our hand. I remember, I'll share a story to kind of close this out. Our last round before this was with a private equity group, Greater Sum Ventures, who did that Series C round, cleaned out our investors. There was a, a big recap of the company. Um, and it was a really significant round for the company, not only from a cash inflection for the business, but it was also where a lot of our team got to take off chips off the table. And so we've been working hard for, it was like eight years into yeah. building the company. I'd never taken off, like any, I didn't, I'd have paid myself for the first five years of the company. And so we've had a lot of, we've put our house on, you know, more, like a lot of things, like every wow. founder last minute story that you can think of not making payroll, I've been there. But it was really meaningful. I remember to like that round, it was roughly like a 200, 250 million value of that last, that, that round. And it was really sizable and we were cleaning up the cap table. So it was a 70% buy. And as I mentioned to you, the one thing that I do regret in my, the only thing that I regret is giving up more capital that I needed, giving up more equity than I needed to. I wish yeah. I would have learned the things that I know now, because I do feel like at the point that I was in, like, um, if I had more knowledge, I would have been more keen on holding on to more of it. And I, but I also didn't have a choice. Again, I go back and I'm like, would I have changed it? Yes. Could I have Could changed you? it? I don't yeah. know. Right. And so but I remember, so I, I remember flying up to meet the head partner at Greater Sum. And this is a moment in my life I'll never forget. It was a term sheet. They presented the term sheet to me in front of me. Okay. So like, it was like physically in front. It's like a movie. And it's like, it, it's literally was a movie. And so you have your, you have like a folder, like a manila folder. And all I want to do is look at the number. Like all I want to do, and it was the first term sheet. So we had like a bid day and we had all these different people that were, we were expecting term sheets from yeah. to choose from. Um, but what I loved about this partner is that they wanted to do it in, in person. And that was something that was so important to me. And it was probably one of the reasons I ended up choosing this partner because of that human element. But I remember them like, like slipping over the manila <laughs> folder to me. Okay. And I'm trying to literally hold my composure, but I can't. This is the first time that it was like real. 
everything's been real up in this point, but it was real for me and my team. Mm -hmm. Like I carry that weight for like those like first 50 employees that like we've put in everything that we had into this company. And I was looking for, and I opened up the piece of paper. Okay. And I am trying to pay attention to any words. I don't even know anything that was said in those five minutes that were taking place. So people were talking, they were trying to tell us why they're going to be great partners. Like, I don't even know. It's like literally flying through. And I feel like I'm in like the matrix of some sort. Right. And I pull open and I'm trying to find this number. And it's of course at the last page, but I'm not trying to like flip through it in my heart. And I could still feel my heart right now going back into, into that seat. And I've never shared the story like publicly. So I appreciate you bringing me back here. My heart is literally like through my, like my, my brain, like it's literally out of my body and I'm shaking and I'm trying to find it and I see it and I literally see it and there it is. And it's the number that we want. Like it's, it's, it's the number close enough to where we want it. Okay. But it is that, it is that buyout of all of our previous investors, which gives us like liquidity, some liquidity for it, for my founders, my co-founders, for my team. And I literally look at it and just tears start falling on my wow. face. Like I could not, my eyes literally just swelled up with just like the heaviest teardrops that you could like, and I couldn't even close my eyes without them just like falling like raindrops. And I'm wow. not, I'm not crying. It's just like the emotion that took place. And I closed the envelope and they noticed that like I saw it and like the first words that come out of my mouth to the partner. And I just say like, thank you. Like, that's yeah. what I said. I said, thank you. And like, this is the first time that I've seen, you know, this is the first time we have our term sheet. It's meaningful. It's meaningful for me and for my team. And we appreciate you all so much for putting this together. And the number has to be higher. Oh my gosh, what a story. And I slipped back the envelope and my brother sitting next to me and he's laughing because this is like, and that's exactly like me. And like, it's, it's to get emotional and then to get back to business. And business is personal, Jay. Like, it is so personal. And I'm so happy to say that we did. We upped the value. Like, we upped the value. We chose that partner. We got the value that we wanted. We made 30 millionaires on that round. Wow. From my angels. We made 18 times our money for our angels, yeah. by the way. So... <laughs> We made every, we made our angels money. We made people in Orlando money. We made our team money. We had so many six, just from a, from a recap, not even from an exit. It was the first bite of the apple. And so I think what's really exciting is I've experienced that and I didn't exit the company. And then now here we are again. So at this moment, I had an opportunity to, do I want to do a recap again, which could have been the right move for me personally, let's say as like a founder, right. And cashed out. Yeah sold it to like a Vista or something. And I'm like, here, you guys deal with this and grow it. But we, we're not done and we're building something. And I do believe in representation. So this last round, I wanted to take the minority option versus the majority so that we can go do it really, really big. Yeah. And we did already do it big, but you what know, we're, one in, we're, we're, we're a unicorn. We're the first Pakistan. We're the first like brother, sister, but like from a minority standpoint, I mean, we're like the only, we're the first unicorn out of Florida. This is a really big deal, especially for what we represent. And we've got to take this, like, forget the, it's not the million. I don't know if it's going to be Decacore. I don't know what else is next, but yeah. we're not stopping until we have, like, the biggest outcome for our entire team. So uh, that's that's how it comes full circle. That was my conversation with Sunira Madani, founder of Stacks. 
the Orlando-based payment processor startup that now has worked with over 22,000 businesses and processed over 23 billion in payments. When we come back, it's a moment of truth for my producer, Olivia. She tests out how much she's really learned over these past few seasons. I know you've heard me say one of the most important parts of raising capital is preparation. Many parts of fundraising prep are challenging for founders, but one that consistently stands out is organizing numbers for your financial model and data room. Enter FlowFi, a financial services firm built for founders by founders. Their team of experts will create your financial model and get your data room ready for any fundraise. And once you close your round, they offer ongoing accounting and CFO services to make sure you're on track and hitting your goals. Using a firm to manage my accounting is something I wish I had done much sooner at my last company, which is why I was so excited to begin using FlowFi myself when I started Funded. With a team of trusted professionals managing my numbers and a beautiful dashboard to check in on everything, I can go back to doing what I do best, building. Visit flowfi.com to learn more and tell them Jason Ye from Funded sent you for 10% off. That's F-L-O-W-F-I.com. I wanted to start a little bit talking about pattern matching. I know it's something we talked a lot about in season one, and I wanted to run some analysis by you. Oh, I love um, it. I'm hoping that, you know, I've progressed over the last few seasons. And I, OK, let's see how I do here. But my observation uh, from listening back to this conversation is that Sanira had this interesting contrast of having in a lot of ways, the exact patterns that investors look for. Like, I remember you said, you know, this is an investor's dream. Like, you already have a successful business. You just need capital to scale. And then she also had a background in the exact industry she founded a company in. But then also, she really deviated from patterns in some ways, like being a first-time founder, and then she was pregnant at least during one raise, and then also Stax is based in Orlando. And I guess that's my observation. So first question is like, am I a genius? What do you think? And then um, my second question is like, when that happens, I guess, how common is that, that someone is both like, ticks so many boxes, but then... I don't know. But I guess my my other question really is like the impact that that can have on the fundraising dynamic. Sure. Well, first, uh, very good analysis and less so labeling you as a genius and me just like an amazing <laughs> teacher. Wow. You're yes, like my star okay. people. You're the genius. Yeah, you're the genius. Yeah. Star people. No, I, I think you called out a lot of really important concepts to make sure that we underline. So this idea of pattern matching is important to pull apart. And I know we've talked about this before, but let's highlight it, which is yeah. um, the job of a venture capitalist to decide where to allocate millions of dollars, especially at the earliest stages, is kind of hard. I mean, I know we're, we're very profounder on this podcast, but I used to be a VC, so I sympathize with, <laughs> right. with the job. You're, you're talking to founders and looking at companies that are so, so early stage 
that there's very little, if any, hard data to go on. You, even mm-hmm. even the data that they do show you, the product that they do show you, can't tell you with any degree of certainty what it's going to be like in a year, let alone five years. And yeah. so the most powerful tools or the most accurate analysis they have is just to say, does this look like something that we've seen before that has been successful, right? Because that can kind of encapsulate a ton of the different variables that go into whether or not a company is successful. Does the founder have the grit and ability to actually grow with the company? Does the team gel and are they able to hire? Can they iterate on the product? Can they actually attract customers? These are all little details that you have to make a decision around in a very short amount of time. And so Pattern matching is this dumb, inaccurate tool that you have in your toolbox as a venture capitalist. Um, And so when you go see someone like Sanira, when she started, yeah, she did check off all these boxes, worked in the industry before. So they have, she has insight, insider insight into that customer. Um, She had bootstrapped all the way. And showing that she's running a real business. She's not just like making things up. She can execute and operate. But the things that were atypical, um, candidly, just make a venture capitalist pause. Like, yeah, we talked about the city. It's like, have I ever seen this before? Can they hire to a city that hasn't in the past actually been able to attract like the, the, the top level of, of engineering and marketing talent? And then especially back in 2014, um, hadn't seen a lot of women actually build gigantic businesses. And so these are dumb, blunt tools to make uh, an important decision. But to your second question, um, how much does that impact the VC's decision? And not in a malicious way, they are trying to make the safest bet that they can, to be honest, mm-hmm. where it's like yeah. they are okay with false negatives, as in, they pass on someone and they're like, oh, maybe well, we messed up. That was actually a, a pretty good bet. But the false positive is one that they're like kind of upset about where they like put money to work and they were like, I shouldn't have done that because it went to zero. So they will look for any opportunity to just use um, a simple tool in order to make a bet that they think has a higher likelihood of being successful. I think that makes perfect sense. And it just reminds me, I feel like a lot of this fundraising language makes it sound like a new idea, but it really reminds me of someone who's hiring for any position where, um, you know, like a lot of the time in the past, I've thought about getting out of podcasting and doing more like writing. Yeah, I have thought about it, Jason. (laughs) And I've thought about doing more like written journalism and stuff like that. And when I've applied for positions like that, people really have a hard time seeing me like I match the pattern in a lot of ways. You know, I have a lot of journalism experience, but but then it does people do view me as a wild card. And then often I do learn that they have hired someone who has the more conventional background and pattern. And so I guess from my um if I had to guess like how to how that impacts the dynamic, like if you are someone like Senora, you probably do need to 
you probably like at least because of the Orlando part, you probably will be perceived as a little bit of like a risk, like, but she's also someone who could really make it, you know? And so you probably need an investor who's less, maybe won't get like conventional backing, but you will probably get people who like have an appetite for some risk. Yeah. And let's be completely candid about it. I mean, being a woman, especially back in 2014, was perceived as a risk. As inaccurate as that is, that was the perception. And, um, you know, one thing you called out is, is like this concept of, you know, entry level position, yeah. Must have two years experience. And you're like, exactly. Yeah. How does that yeah. work? Um, and it, I talk about this quite a bit where we are in this transition point. We have been in this transition point over the last couple of years where the industry understands how much of a, a situation they created where, yes, you're pattern matching, yeah. but as yeah, you right, keep right. running the same pattern, all you're doing right. is making the one pattern be the only acceptable pattern when right. we know that women, minorities, other cities completely have the talent and ability to create great companies. And right. so where, where, where we're at and why I applauded Sunir so much is that even with the industry wanting to make changes, the fact is change takes a long time to happen. And so yeah. this current generation of founders, uh, especially the underrepresented you know, females, mm-hmm. uh, founders of color, et cetera, they are still going to have a really hard time, even with all the awareness of the um, uh-huh. inequity in the industry. But yeah. people like Sanira are going to end up becoming the patterns that future founders get to match against. So the fact that right. she was able to do so much and now has such a visible platform and talks about it a lot means that, Olivia, when you go raise, someone who had invested in Sanira will be able to say like in their head, right. this reminds me it, a lot of Sanira, yeah. you know? And, no, right. Uh, and it won't be like a risk calculation. It will, yeah, those things shouldn't be perceived as as risks. They should. So that's interesting. And that's that's good to hear that obviously it's a long and slow process and um, could take multiple generations. As I was just saying that, I was thinking about like future Jason, like like, like, tell you me know, more about uh, future Jason. <laughs> I was just picturing like present the, day Jason wants you know, to know as well. No, like the people who will, sorry, you mentioned that we get profound on this podcast. We I do. think you said that earlier and this is more meta, but I was just like picturing generational change and like who Jason would be like in 21 <laughs> 22 or something um he would be dressed like neo from the matrix that's what i imagine um (laughs) i have that same i have the same image in my head love it anyway um okay the other thing that i wanted to talk about though is um this wasn't a huge part of the conversation but when i really thought about it i was like i don't really know much about angel investing and so my first question is like what the heck is an angel and okay let me throw out what I'm able to parse from this. It's yes. that an angel is an individual and uh, versus like a VC is an institution or something. Is that the difference? That is, that's one of the differences. I mean, angel is this term, by the way, that came from Broadway. 
So angels, oh. yeah, angels were the first backers of of shows. Oh. They would um, they would put the money behind these shows, which uh, yeah. many times didn't make any money. So yeah. you had to be like this angel sent from heaven to even allow us to create this this show. Um, yeah. And so that term has been extended to any sort of individual investing at the earliest stages. Um, so your question of is it just an individual versus a firm? Yeah. Somewhat. I mean, because, but I wouldn't say that that's the primary distinction because there are individuals that run their own venture capital firms. I think when we think about the term angel, it really is this idea of taking the biggest risk yeah, because it's okay. the earliest capital. And these individuals are, you know, they might not know exactly where their money's going to go. And they are just like coming down from heaven and bestowing you with some money to just get started. And a lot yeah. of times these angels are like, they they know, or they're not making decisions the same way uh, venture capitalists are in terms of like full portfolio and what the return yeah, profile is going to be. It's more like it's, a gut instinct. That's right. That's right. Uh. For for a big portion of angel investors, it, it's really like a gut instinct. Yeah. I, I like this person and I'll make a decision really quickly. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, That was... That was that was just like a side note. That was funny and insightful when you described it, if, uh, like the angel scene as a country club or whatever. Because, yeah. yeah, who are like, it, it's just interesting because there's like this mismatch of incentives or something where like an angel just you know wants to have a nice afternoon, meet meet a young, interesting person who maybe has a great idea, and then obviously the founders like Sanira like they there's much more intentionality and it's not like a meandering afternoon um so i thought that was interesting but the other thing i wanted to ask was um so i think she described one of her rounds as an angel round like um is that a thing that people go for like do people have rounds where i'm sure everyone's hoping for an angel right but I got some intentionality from her that this is kind of what they were seeking. And why would you, like, what is the function of that round? Is it just you're yeah. trying to get the most bang for your buck and only get one investor? Or why? What's the strategy there? Uh, it's a it's a great question. So there are two parts to my answer. I'll describe what I imagine was going through her head back then. And then mm -hmm. I'll describe how this strategy has kind of evolved over the years and something that I've yeah. actually like grabbed on myself. And Angel Army. That's, oh my gosh, <laughs> star pupil. Yes, we will talk about the Angel Army right after that. Yeah. Uh, but back in the day when she was raising, it was probably just that she didn't have access to venture capitalists. She didn't have access to formal right. investors. And um, anytime that she did have a conversation with maybe a former VC, uh, a formal VC, they were probably like, mm -hmm. oh, we don't want to invest in uh, Orlando, or yeah. they probably wouldn't have said it out loud, but a woman. And so the only shots that she thought she could convert on were ones with angels, ones with individuals. And so an angel round was probably uh, more- this is like what, this is like going back to what we were talking about initially, where this is- because she's still, because of the pattern matching problem, like she needed someone, like we were talking about, like an app with an appetite for risk. Right. That like doesn't 
make the same decisions based on yeah. certain patterns, right? So yeah. it was probably more of a necessity than it was a explicit strategy uh, of hers. So her okay. that first round, that angel round was like, we need, you know, we need to raise five hundred thousand dollars in order to pay for the servers or you know pay for these engineers in order to yeah. scale because we have so much business. We're gonna piece it together with little twenty five fifty k checks here and there, and just get going. Yeah. And then once you have that initial tranche of capital in and then you're able to produce more traction and growth then you have more tangible things to go to formal investors with now what uh, you what okay. you hinted at and and what I talked about right at the start of this is um, now this is becoming more of an explicit strategy the whole angel army oh. which is that now um there is a crop mm. of angels that aren't just rich dentists that don't know anything about it's a startup scene or retired CEOs. There are 25-year-old up-and-coming product managers at Wait, are you the hottest an, you're company. An, you're an angel, no? That is true. I am an angel investor. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So I, I don't I don't think I look like a retired dentist. Um, no, no. <laughs> no, but there is this crop of angel investors like myself or like an up-and-coming product manager for Carta or Stripe that doesn't have a lot of money, but knows the space really well, has an incredible uh, network. And there can be a deliberate strategy to say that we're going to bring on interesting. 20 angels in a first round where the main goal is not necessarily, huh. can I get a bunch of operational capital? Like, can I get $500,000 to execute on my, my milestones? It's more to say, can I get 20 awesome people onto my cap table? where their networks all of a sudden become accessible to me and the credibility of somebody from this hot company investing me is a signal for the future venture capitalists yeah. to say, oh, wow, this is a deal worth doing. Um, so that is a strategy that I am mm. a big supporter of and encourage a lot of founders to execute. That's interesting. Let me repeat back some of what I'm hearing from you. So. Um, it sounds like you were just describing that there's kind of been a change in what an angel or who an angel can be. Because in my mind, like, I think that the concept of an angel is actually one of the most accessible concepts related to fundraising. Like, I think it's something that my parents know about. I think it's something that, like, most people have heard of an angel. But when us normal people think of an angel. We call you, we um, call you normies. <laughs> normies, uh, non-VC folks. I think I think of like, I think of a man, definitely a man, probably a white man who lives in like a very modern home. And I, I definitely think of it as one or maybe two people or something who really propel your company. Right. And they give an obscene amount or something and like don't ask a lot of questions and just write you kind of a blank check. But that's interesting that it's taken, I mean, to use a political term or like, um, yeah, like a grassroots direction. Yeah, that's right. Um. And that's just so, it's like a Kickstarter model. That's interesting. But like IRL. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's actually good for a lot of reasons. I think um, I think it's going to end up creating a lot of wealth for people that don't have it already. Yeah, so that's, getting yeah. into the earliest stages of generational companies is going to create a lot yeah. of wealth for people. Um, and then like it also helps companies get started in, in a much more 
um, expedited fashion. But I, so Sunira, Sunira, gosh, Sunira, Sunira. Okay. So Sunira did not do an angel army though, right? She did a more traditional Ochi angel, right? Yeah. She, I'm pretty sure she wasn't like, I'm going to go tactically choose the best <laughs> small individual. Like I think, Facebook I think, friends. She, yeah, yeah, I think she was just like, whoever will consider giving me money and oh. my company's growing, I need to grow it. And so she yeah. probably did have, you know, she kissed a lot of uh, frogs in frogs, order to find, that's in, right. you guys, in order to find yeah. some, uh, Gems, yeah, Prince exactly. Gems, yeah. You got there was so much frog smooching talk in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of reference to that. Um let me okay, wait, let me just see if there's anything else. Oh, okay. Um, I guess just to close out here, did I hear that right? Where she's like, Did I I okay, I think this was our first guest that this had ever happened to. Tell me if I understood this correctly. She's when you guys were talking about the possibility of a future raise, she basically was like, oh, no, like our next step is to go public. So like, did we? Well, I didn't get to meet her, but I'll just say, did we have a guest on here who like fundraising served its purpose? Like the <laughs> life cycle is complete. Like she funded this company and now the next step is actually not fundraising. It's to go public. Well, yes and no. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yes and no, in that uh, going public is actually a fundraising event. What? No. Yeah, I think it's a technicality that oh, uh, no. a lot of normies don't quite <laughs> <Yeah>. understand. <laughs> no, but it's an initial public offering is the is yeah. what IPO stands IPO, for. Also known as IPO. Yeah. Also known as IPO. Okay. <laughs> you are you are selling shares to the public, so um, oh. you actually bring in new capital. And it is a fundraise process. It just so means it's like that now massive angel army. <laughs> in in some <laughs> ways, exactly. But no, I also think you're right. It, it got her to the point where she even has it in her sights that she will IPO, which is the concluding point for a lot of these startups. Um, and so, in that uh, sense, you're right. Yeah. The IPO um, is that um, is that event that makes equity in a company yeah, liquid yes, because yes. now now the I founder see. and now the investors and now the employees those shares become shares that can be traded on the open market yeah. for cold hard cash and so that's a big big moment for every company okay but then after a company goes public then the fundraising is done right no but then what about <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not. I mean, sometimes, sometimes they need to raise more money. Um, yeah, that you can do. You can you can do it again. You can. Uh, oh my god! Can sell more shares. You can do debt offerings. Right. But, you yeah, could, yeah. These are small right, technicalities right, right. that we don't have to get into. Okay, but definitely <laughs> felt like a huge milestone. That that's huge. That'll be a, that, a huge that milestone. Felt wild. Okay. Yeah. And that's uh, so cool. Even though there is like technically more fundraising in the future for for a lot of companies that IPO um yeah. your your instinct is correct that the IPO is the thing that all these venture back founders are really really driving towards so we're okay. excited to yeah. see Sinira get to that point yeah no that's that's so cool i guess i'm a little late you know i wasn't asked to be a part of the angel army unfortunately but you know maybe at the ipo i can get in there squeeze in be a shareholder i think i'd, yeah, I'd want to be part of that as well 
every business needs a payment processor, right? Well, it turns out that's true for companies you didn't even know existed. Here's Sanira on the weirdest, most unexpected businesses she's worked with. Oh my God, we've serviced every type of business and you learn that there's a business for everything. God, we used to have like a board that was like the weirdest business board. What are some things that people make everything? Like when you talk about like widgets, like literally people have to make like the the things on a cup. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Somebody makes that. Yeah. So there's a business for that. From like a service standpoint, God, there's a person in Florida that literally there's storms that come through. So there's a business for like putting closing your windows, right? Like that's a business, right? So we've serviced businesses like that. You're doing God's work, Sanira. Everything is a business. Thanks a bunch for listening. If you have any questions about today's show, or maybe you're raising money yourself and want some help problem solving. If so, find me on social. I'm at J-A, that's J-A-Y-Y-E-H. Or shoot me an email at jason at fundedpod.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Olivia Reingold. Hello. And Angel Adriano. Hi, everyone. Thanks also to Jonathan Lee from Adamant. Hello, friends. And thanks to Sanira Badani for being an amazing guest and for reminding us to always have the courage to bet on yourself, turn that multi-million dollar check around, and say, nice try, try again. As always, one last thanks to our fantastic sponsor, Vanta the leading automated security and compliance platform.